What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet today. Today is Monday, February 21st, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here by myself this week because we're about to air my interview with Sandy Gibson of Better Place Forests. Before we do that, today's episode is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Listener, welcome to the planet today. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way Monday and Friday. This show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental. Whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics, TPT has a little bit for everyone, so we're happy to have you here. And with that, we're going to get right into the interview. Today on TPT, we are joined by Sandy Gibson. Sandy is the founder of Better Place Forests, which is America's first conservation memorial forest. Instead of graves, Better Place offers a sustainable alternative to cemeteries for families who choose cremation. The 130-acre-plus woodland launched in 2017 and is based in San Francisco. Better Place Forest has also been featured in the New York Times and on the Today Show. Sandy Gibson, welcome to the planet today. Matt, thank you for having me. Very excited to sit down, and I will be the first to admit I know next to nothing about this topic, so I'm excited to learn quite a bit here. Uh, well, I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, happy to answer any questions. So I guess first off, let's take it way back. I think that Better Place Forest is a really interesting take on sustainability and an approach that I haven't really heard otherwise. So what first got you interested in sustainability or environmentalism as a whole? Okay, well, let me give you the kind of high-level overview of Better Place Forest, and then I'll get into and I'll give, give you the what, how, and why. Uh, so as you said, we're a sustainable alternative to traditional cemeteries for families who choose cremation. So the idea there is that for families who are choosing cremation, uh, they're often choosing more of a celebration of life. Sometimes they're having a traditional funeral. Afterwards, they're wondering what to do with those ashes. And when they choose a memorial tree in one of our conservation areas, they are buying that tree's dedication rights and they are coming with their ashes and hosting a spreading ceremony in that forest where they return the ashes of the person they love back to the earth. And there's a permanent marker in front of that tree. And that is the place similar to, to a grave that people can come back and the people remember. How it works is that 80% of baby boomers are planning to choose cremation, but they're typically not pre-purchasing in cemeteries the way that their parents and grandparents did. And that's not because people have lost a need for a sense of place or a need for ritual. People still want ritual for their families as part of that goodbye process. 
But what they're saying is they want something that's different than the rituals that they know. So they're often looking at cemeteries and saying that doesn't fit what I want because they want something more natural. Okay. Or they want something more beautiful or they want something more affordable. Uh, and then why we started the business was uh, I've always been an entrepreneur since I was in college. I uh, ran a few software companies before this. And I really wanted to do something that felt a little more meaningful to me. Uh, my co-founder and COO, Brad Milne, and I were talking about different ideas. And uh, there was a book that I'd read called Cradle to Cradle. And it was one of the first books to promote the idea of kind of sustainable design and the idea that you can create a business model which has positive externalities or at least which doesn't have negative externalities. And what I mean by that as an example was uh, they at one point went in and they, they redesigned a factory in Germany. And originally there was a problem with the factory, which was that it took in river water and then it put out wastewater. And the town around it was like, we don't want this wastewater in our river. This is bad. Can you redesign this process? And they looked at that and they said, maybe we could design it as a, as a closed loop where they didn't use fresh river water. They used uh, distilled water. And what they found is by redesigning that factory process, they actually ended up with a better functioning factory because the water quality was always consistent, whereas river water changes in terms of its chemical makeup. So they realized by taking a different approach to design, they could actually create a better business that had no negative environmental impact. So we're very into the idea of finding businesses uh, that had a positive externality, the businesses that, you know, the customer was buying a product that actually made the world better. Okay. Uh, I like the idea of Tom's and their one-for-one one model. Mm -hmm. uh, I love the idea of something like Rothy's, where instead of really expensive and you know or potentially endangered materials, they're building it out of recycled materials, and that's part of the product. Uh, so the customer's paying for this. Uh, the idea of, of graves, of trees instead of tombstones, I always loved. You know, there's been a number of companies that have tried biodegradable urns, uh, proposed biodegradable caskets, and Brad had one day sent me an article on this, and I remember I woke up, it was a Saturday morning and I texted him back and I said, oh, this crap, like, this is not a business. Yeah. Like, there's just no way yeah. this is going to work. There's no way you could sell these profitably. And more importantly, where are you going to put that urn? And I was a little harsh and cynical, but, uh, you know, in, in my life experience, I, I, there's not a lot of, I've learned a lot of, there are not a lot of things that are permanent. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I kind of said, this would never work. Five days later, uh, it was my mom's birthday. Uh, 20 years after she died. And when I was 10, my father died of a stroke unexpectedly. And we had to go to the cemetery and buy a, buy a family plot. And, you know, the only, it was really important to my mom that we had a family plot. There were six burial plots and we could all be there together. Uh, but, you know, the only space we could find that was still affordable was right beside the street. So it was very much a place you didn't really want. Gotcha. But it was important to her that you could all be together. A year later, my mom died of cancer. So for me, my whole life, I've been going back to their cemetery. Um, and I've always understood that like you, it's really important to me to have that place to go back to, but I didn't like it. And so it was March 1st, 2015. I was at my mom's grave. Uh, and I remember just standing there and it's this big shiny black tombstone, polished granite. So you can see the cars parked behind you or driving behind you. And it's very visually not what you want. Um, and I was literally just there like, God, I don't like this place. And then a, this, the bus stopped at the bus stop right by it. And it's a loud, you know, air brake screeching sound. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, God, there's gotta be a better place than this. And I actually walked into the cemetery and called up Brad and I said, we're going to do that tree thing, but we're going to, we're going to own the land. Uh, we're going to create the place. Cause I realized in that moment that 
I wanted a beautiful place to go to and a beautiful place to remember. Mm-hmm. And that was more important than to me, the fact that it was close to my home. I think that makes a lot of sense too, because you know, a lot of times when you are visiting a cemetery, it's for someone, actually, I'm going to backtrack and say, every time you visit a cemetery, it's to visit someone that you love and someone who you have these beautiful, fond memories with. So to have a space that's also beautiful and gives you that avenue to remember or grieve or whatever it is that you're doing there in a space that's warm and comforting and almost reminds you more of them, that sounds great. That's exactly it. You know, when I think about business, uh, there's a good book called Blue Ocean Strategy, and its argument is that every business is a function of different trade-offs. A famous example of this was Cirque du Soleil versus Barnum & Bailey's. Barnum & Bailey's was really big on animals, and animals were really expensive. There were constant issues with, were they being treated ethically? You know, did people want animals? And Cirque du Soleil came out and said, well, let's get rid of the animals and not spend our money on that. But let's spend all of it on design, on music, and on the best acrobats in the world. And so, yes, it was a very different circus experience, but it was still selling the same concept of you're going to give me 50 or 100 bucks and you're going to go have a magical, unique experience with a little bit of humor and a little bit of awe and all those things. Um, And it worked really well. And when we thought about cemeteries and the funeral industry, it's the same question. How do you make those, how do you change those trade-offs? And so we chose to trade proximity, you know, being a local cemetery for being in a really iconic and beautiful place. Uh, we chose to trade off uh, the idea of physical permanence in the sense of big tombstones and a lot of concrete with the idea of a natural space that was exceptionally beautiful. Gotcha. And that's really been the approach that we've taken is, how do, we, how do we really double down on that? With a third part that was unique, which is that by choosing a better place for us, do you know that you are leaving a legacy of conservation? So you're really democratizing conservation. Someone for, um, you know, our trees start as low as $4,000 is contributing to the permanent protection of a place in a way that usually you're looking at much larger donors to protect land trusts like that. Gotcha. So how did you take that initial idea that we just kind of went over of how Better Place for Us started and take it to where it is today. So there's a great book um, by a guy named Eric Reese, who I was lucky to meet once for a coffee when he was in Toronto. And he wrote a book called The Lean Startup. And he was the CTO and co-founder of a company that was somewhat successful. I think now he's starting a new, uh, really interesting, like long-term exchange concept where, you know, it's a stock market focused on people who are going to hold it for very long periods of time. And uh, it was a really good book. And the idea that The Lean Startup is that you really want to treat all businesses like an experiment. And you want to do things that, you know, why combinators famous this, do things that don't scale. And you really want to look and make sure you've got demand. So the stages of a startup business, stage number one is proving that there is a potential market. And so that is basically, in our case, uh, that was when it took almost two years to work on figuring out the legal structure of what we do, you know, no one's done this before. You're dealing with permitting of land and land permits. Those are complicated business permits. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, very complicated state by state. You're dealing with uh, cemetery and funeral regulations. Uh, you're dealing with all that work. You're trying to find land and buy it. Uh, so we were doing all of that while also working very closely uh, with potential customers to determine if they wanted trees in one of our forests. Uh, so our first two years were really focused on that. You know, I'm originally from Toronto, Canada. Uh, moved down to San Francisco in 2016. And, uh, and there's a whole other thing about getting a visa as a Canadian, which is an experience. 
uh, and now a green card. And so the, the beginning part is just proving that this concept is possible, proving that you can find land, that you can permit the land, that customers will buy trees, uh, that you can build a brand like Better Place Forests. Uh, your second step as a startup is really going to be saying, how do you prove you really have product market fit, that there's more scale? And that's usually more of just a revenue number. Can you prove that uh, you know, you're generating more revenue? That's typically around your, your Series A. And your Series B is really focused on scale. So you know, steps were find land and, and prove that the concept worked. Step two was buying our first few forests, proving that there was demand nationally for this. Mm-hmm. You know, that this isn't just a San Francisco idea. This is something that everyone in the country wants. And then uh, third was really focusing on scaling, which is buying land. Uh, you know, we have nine forests open across the country uh, and building a business and, and an organization that's capable of operating at that scale. Gotcha. It's really cool. I know that our listeners are definitely interested in the environmental side of things. So I'm curious about the environmental benefits to something like a conservation memorial forest compared to a traditional cemetery. Great. So... First off, traditional cemeteries are very resource intensive. And I I don't want to throw any shade at cemeteries because they're very important. And my parents are in a cemetery and that's important to me. Um, I think there's a very important role that people have a place to go back to and remember the people that came before them. Mm-hmm. I think there's, I think that's important. I think that uh, people, it was very helpful to me being grounded in the knowledge of who my parents were and who my grandparents and my great grandparents were. Um, in terms of how I live my life and, and what my goals are in life. Uh, so I think there's a very important role of the cemeteries. Um, but at an environmental level, they, they've struggled. When they were first created in North America, you know, Frederick Olmsted, who designed Central Park, he started the large part of his career designing cemeteries. And there were these big, beautiful parks. And they were designed to be parks. In many cases, though, they got infilled to the point that they stopped being that really beautiful space. Um, and a few inventions made them very environmentally intensive. So for example, uh, most cemeteries require grave liners, which are concrete boxes that the cemetery, that the casket goes in. Okay. Uh, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a very, uh, concrete is very energy intensive to create, intensive to install, and largely unnecessary in this case. The original innovation was so that there'd be, there'd be a concrete liner on top of the casket, so the casket wouldn't cave in. Gotcha. So the idea was that that way you wouldn't get a divot, and then you could use a single lawnmower Demote all that. That's where that idea came from. Uh, so obviously they didn't come with an with an environmental angle to how do we protect um, important natural space? Uh, how do we keep it really beautiful? That wasn't the approach. The approach was very human centric, uh, and the the natural space was focused only on kind of beautiful and what's possible to maintain. That's not always true. There are some cemeteries that are absolutely spectacular, uh, but that's just. Let me paint that with a broad brush and hopefully no one's too offended. Yeah. <laughs> uh, our approach is to go to the opposite. We're supposed to start thinking like a conservation area and to say conservation is a wonderful thing, but it's very expensive and you need to create big trust funds. Now, cemeteries as a concept are permanent and they have trust funds to maintain them. Now, maintaining a cemetery is very expensive because, uh, you know, there's no root systems to hold the earth together. Uh, they struggle with earthquakes. They struggle with like movement. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's any, any water flows, that can create huge issues with keeping the caskets in a consistent place. Uh, that's why there's so much concrete in there. Whereas forests, uh, you know, the beauty of forests is they kind of maintain themselves. So our concept was to really start with this as a conservation area and work backwards. Um, and then using the fact that people were buying memorial trees as a way to fund and maintain that. So from a sustainability standpoint, it's obviously much lower impact on the environment. 
Uh, we offset cremations uh, by our impact tree program where we plant 25 uh, to up to more than 1,000 trees sometimes per tree sold. Oh, wow. So the carbon impact is huge. Now, we do those plantings in uh, drought and fire-affected parts of California. It's a bit of an arbitrage. You know, the land we buy is very expensive and, and very focused on beauty and accessibility. The impact trees we plant with One Tree Planted are focused on where they have the maximum environmental impact. So we really offset the carbon issues around traditional funerals. How And the land itself, of course, is protected with an endowment fund. Uh, and we, we're working with, and all of our forests, we're starting to work with land trusts around conservation easements as well. Uh, so it's very, very protected land and very beautiful for many generations to come. Gotcha. That's that's great. Um, and something you alluded to a little bit earlier that I'd like to follow up on. Cemetery plots can be expensive and that cost varies from state to state and even can vary locally. So how does the cost of better place forests compare to a traditional cemetery? Great. So, you know, better place forests, our average tree is going to come somewhere in that seven or 8,000 range for two people. So you divide that by two if you want the per person cost. So per person, you know, let's say 4,000 is around the average uh, price. Your average funeral in the United States is around $8,000. Your average funeral plus burial can be as high as 15,000 depending on where you are. Um, and again, those are averages. If you go into um, really beautiful cemeteries in major cities, uh, in Toronto, where I'm from, a beautiful side-by-side -side plot in 2015 in one of the downtown cemeteries would have been about $100,000. Plus the cost of opening and closing fees, grave liners, and the tombstone, and the endowment for the tombstone. So it, it gets very, very expensive quite quickly. Where the costs really jump or if you want a family plot. So if you want a family plot where 10 or 20 family members can be together, there are very limited numbers of plots that are, are contiguous mm -hmm. that are big enough for a family plot. So that can get very expensive very, very quickly. That can be millions of dollars potentially depending where you are. Jeez. <laughs> um, now, if you're in a rural area, it can be much more affordable. It can be 500 or $1,000 or $2,000 plus the cost of the casket, the tombstone, the opening, closing, the grave liner. So long answer to say we're, we're, in general, about half the price of the traditional option. Gotcha. So something else that um, you had mentioned in the introduction email is that there's sustainable alternatives to cemeteries and a big focus of yours is leaving a positive impact on the environment. So I'd love if you could speak a little bit more to some of that. So, you know, I like to say that the, the vision for Better Place Forests was always to help every person write a better ending to their story. Uh, you know, one thing that I talk about a lot is that there are three moments that you'll never, ever forget, even if you wish you could. You'll never forget someone you love dying. You'll never forget their funeral. And you never forget the image of their final resting place. And when you think about yourself, you know, those are three moments that we can't control all of, but we can control part of. And I love the idea that with Better Place for us, people can choose that final resting place. They know what the image for their family is going to be. And when they choose Better Place Forests, they know that everyone knows that they've left a legacy of conservation. That the world is a little bit more beautiful because of their choice and because they existed. And I think that's really important. Yeah. Um, I love it when you walk through, I've always enjoyed walking through cemeteries um, and just wondering who people were. You see their name and you wish you knew more of their life story you see the markers in our forest 
and I think it makes it more beautiful to see their names and see some of the comments that they have and the quotes that they've chosen and know that these all people for different reasons have chosen to be a part of protecting this place. Uh, there's one marker in our forest that I think is one of the most beautiful things I've seen. And it says the names of the couple and the wife had passed away and, and, and the husband uh, spread her ashes beneath her tree. And it's a tree, a beautiful Douglas fir tree overlooking the Pacific Ocean in Mendocino, California. And in the marker, it says their names. And then it says, I searched almost all my life for you. Our love was worth the wait. Damn, that's beautiful. <laughs> that's so touching. Yeah, I just, I read that. And it's very hard the first time anyone sees that not to cry because it's just yeah, and it's not sad. It's 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 beautiful. You're like what a what a life what a story, and the idea that he honored his wife, the love of his life, who he, you know, uh, I can imagine that kind of love when it's something that you've waited so long to find, and inevitably was was quite short, but to honor her by knowing that they're going to spend forever under that tree together, that that place is incredibly beautiful and that by choosing that, they're helping keep it beautiful forever. I just think there's just, it's the right mix of kind of beautiful and emotional and legacy. And I think it's very special and it's hard to explain to people that uh, when they choose better place for us, they all tend to tend to understand it. Yeah. That's something that, I don't know. I'm just thinking of the cemeteries that I've been to for family members and, and friends of family members. And it's all not to generalize here, but a lot of the same story where it's just, you go in sometimes tough to find where you're going. A lot of different tombstones that all look similar and all of them, regardless of where I've been to, they all kind of have that same vibe where it's interesting, a bit gloomy because you realize where you are, but I can imagine going into a memorial forest and just seeing just beautiful trees and shrubs and just vegetation immersing you and it's all because of the people that chose to help protect that. That's beautiful. It's, it's something special. And particularly when you remember this, the vast majority of our trees are chosen by the person for themselves. Uh, you know, it's individuals and couples coming in before they die and choosing their trees. And we have a ton of software and technology behind the business, not totally obvious, but we've had to develop all this technology around mapping in the forests and every time someone comes to pick a tree, you know, we're getting a photo of them at that tree. And you're seeing them and their family there on the day that they picked their tree. And they, it's, it's sometimes hard to believe, but like the smile that people have when they pick their tree, it's a weird sense of relief. I, I picked my tree uh, back in the, the same day the New York Times article came out, actually, uh, on Better Place Forests. And it's this weird moment where you look around and you realize this is what forever looks like for me. And forever is very beautiful. And for yeah. the first time in your life, death has something very specific tied to it, as opposed to, to a complete unknown. It is, well, I guess this is where I'll be. And I guess this is where people will come back to. And it's beautiful and that's comforting. Uh, but when your family comes back, they see that picture of you at that tree. So our very, very first customer he chose his tree. He actually chose multiple trees because he kept coming back and changing it. Uh, he was quite a character. <laughs> so really nice, really funny guy. And, you know, we finally picked his final tree. He comes there and there's a picture of him. And I remember when his son called my cell and said his father had passed and we helped him with the details. 
you know, they came back for that ceremony and they got to see a picture right before they spread the ashes of their father beneath his tree. They see a picture of him looking back at them, arms around that tree smiling. That's incredible. And that is just like, that doesn't exist in any cemetery. Yeah. Because it's so unique. It's so different. The person's proud of this place. It's different. Yeah. Which is part of a bit of a legacy. I like doing things my way. And it's good for the earth. And so it's, it's this very unusual and kind of special moment that's hard to explain. But once people have done it, they, they all love Better Place Forest. And when you add that in and it's a couple, for example, and they get to add the, the beauty of the idea of being together forever as part of this tree, that's special too. Um, some families go even further and really design the whole weekend experience. So I had one customer who uh, put aside funds to pay for 15 of her friends and family members to rent uh, rental houses in her favorite place up in Sea Ranch right by our forest in Mendocino and plan the dinners there. Wow. And, you know, she's smiling and she's thinking, she's like, yeah, it's going to be a three-day weekend blowout. We did, worked on her ceremony together. Um, you know, she wants a champagne toast after the ceremony out looking over the ocean. Like, it's just, I love that. Yeah. You know, how often do we get a chance to write everything about our own story? And in this case, it's the ending. It's the thing that everyone will remember for the rest of their lives. It's funny you brought up the word legacy because while you were speaking, all I kept thinking about was, I think whether it's surface level or deeper than that, all of us want to leave behind some sort of legacy and you want to be remembered for something great or beautiful. And in this case, you get to choose exactly how you're remembered at the last moments. And that's, it's so different to anything I've heard. <laughs> it's, you know, it's choose your own adventure, but you're the, you're the author. And I think we're just going through a societal moment right now where the world always, you know, bounces back and forth between different poles. I'm a big believer that, you know, it's your life. You get to choose how it goes. Mm -hmm. Things don't happen to you. Things happen and you choose what to do about them. Um, You know, my mom, she was diagnosed with uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma when she was 39 years old. Uh, At the time, it was the 80s. Uh, there was no treatment for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So she was given a terminal um, a terminal diagnosis on Christmas Eve in, you know, what was it, 1989, 1988? Jeez. Uh, 1988, I think. One of those years. I was, I was five, so yeah. I which one. But, you know, and her response to that was really interesting. She was very religious, and she asked this question. She said, why did God do this to me? And she asked that enough, and eventually, one day, she was thinking about her experience and she'd had this really interesting interaction. The, uh, the psychologist, she said, how do I tell my kids that I'm dying of cancer? And the first hospital psychiatrist said, oh, well, you don't tell them. And that, she was like, I don't know about that. Yeah. The second one said, oh, well, you have to tell them. So she's sitting there, she's got two, two of these psychiatrists who are both very educated, very talented, totally disagreeing on this thing. And she asked another person uh, who is someone who had, who was a cancer survivor who happened to be volunteering at the hospital. And she said, well, well, here's what I told my family. And my mom realized that she trusted her because she'd had a shared experience. She knew what it was like to have someone tell you that you're going to die. And that's where this idea for a nonprofit that she founded called Wellspring came from. And Wellspring is a a network of cancer support centers throughout Canada uh, where cancer survivors provide counseling and support to cancer patients. And the whole idea is that, yes, it's very important to have experts for certain forms of counseling, but frequently what you really need is shared experience, particularly when that experience is so deeply traumatic and so deeply scary, you really trust someone with a shared experience. 
And so Wellspring has done unbelievably well. Uh, for the longest time, it was 95% volunteer driven, it was incredibly cash efficient um, as a nonprofit in a way of providing really critical support services uh, to cancer patients and their families. And she found that because she just asked herself that question, like, why did this happen? And then one day she realized that she understood this problem. She knew it because she'd been diagnosed with cancer. She knew the doctors. She knew all the people. She said, well, I guess I have to do this. Huh. Uh, so I, I do believe that we can all do that. And I think that when we look at our own death in the end of our life, we have a chance, all of us, to do that. Uh, whether it's to create a special moment so that your friends and family will always remember you, whether it's to focus on creating that special moment so it hurts a little bit less for them, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's your kids and you just want to make sure that, uh, you know, there's a saying that I like uh, at a spiritual level, which is that uh, people don't die so that they can disappear forever. Uh, they die so that they can always be with you. I've never heard that, but that's beautiful. <laughs> I really like that. And I, I think that you can, I think you can help people remember that. So we've helped people with doing things like thinking through their after party, mm-hmm. you know, and I think it's, it's a super simple question, but no one knows just, I don't really know what my dad's favorite drink was, but I wish I did because then when I drank it, I could remember him Yeah, and he, I could always be connected to him. Those are all little things that we can all do. And when you think about the, the world, it's richer because of those experiences. If you knew that shepherd's pie was your mom's favorite food in the world, it's going to taste better than shepherd's pie would have for the rest of your life because of that knowledge. Yeah. And so it's, uh, I'll leave you with another, another concept that I really like, which is, um, have you ever read the book Shantaram? No, I've never heard of it. Oh, well, hopefully you'll t- if you take one <laughs> thing out of this podcast, hopefully you go read Shantaram. Uh, it is a fabulous book. So Shantaram was written by the uh, guy who at the time was the number one most wanted criminal in Australia. Wow. He was known as the gentleman bandit. He'd had a, he had a bad divorce, got a, picked up a heroin addiction and started robbing banks. But apparently like a gentleman, uh, I don't know what that means. Yeah, I don't know what that means either. <laughs> I, I believe he was very polite while doing it. And, you know, very politely written notes. Please, ma'am, I have a gun. Yeah. I would like all of your money kind of thing. Uh, and so he, he obviously got caught, uh, went to jail, escaped, got caught again, escaped again, and fled to India. And he ends up in India for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, let's say, and gets very involved with the um, Muslim mob in Mumbai. And when he later gets caught and sent back to jail, he writes this book called Shantaram. And Shantaram is, uh, it's, so it's, it's this fiction, but you know, obviously somewhat semi-autobiographical, hard to tell what the difference is. And it is really stunning and really beautiful. Uh, and there's this one character called Abdul Qadir Khan, who is the, the boss of the mob in Mumbai. And he says, he shares his idea, the idea of the ultimate complexity. And I'm going to get some of these words wrong, but what he more or less says is he thinks the purpose of the universe is an onward march towards an infinite complexity. And the things that make the world more complex are what are good. That's really and something cool. that destroys that complexity is what's evil. So when, when someone is murdered and they don't get to live their life story, that's obviously a lack of complexity. That's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so one of the ways that I think about it is that one of the things that we can all do um, as business as business leaders or even as people just is is how do you add to that complexity in a way that's good and I think someone's life story that richness of a story that designing a great funeral 
how, you know, it seems really minor, but at the same time, that 10, 15, 20, 100 people who show up, that, that is a part of their life for the rest of their life. How do you make it special and beautiful? Yeah. Um, so I think there's so much that we can do here around legacy, around story, that, that makes the world a little bit more interesting and a little bit better. Yeah, I, I think I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I, I think that's a pretty good place to wrap up that part of the interview and move on to something quick, something very fun. I have three rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready? All right, let's do it. Number one, what is your favorite animal? Probably elephants. That's mine too. African or Asian? <laughs> African. <laughs> Me too. I love the, the big ears. <laughs> All right, back to rapid fire. Number two, what is something you do to be more sustainable in your own life? Outside of work? Sorry, that's kind of like uh, <laughs> my, my, my work is pretty focused on sustainability. And my, my answer on that one, again, would be, I, I believe the most important work we're doing a better place for us. Obviously, protecting land is really important. But I think really what's important is showing the world that you can create sustainable business models. Yeah. Sustainability and business do not have to be in conflict with each other. Um, and they shouldn't be. And unfortunately, too many people think sustainability, uh, you know, there, there's some people who come from the approach of saying, like, business is always bad. There's no way of it being good. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I don't, I don't agree with that. Um, and then other folks who have a very harsh view. And uh, I remember speaking to a student at, at Stanford once, and he said, I get your mission-oriented business, but my view has always been make money, and then I'll, I'll make my impact in the world. And I asked him, I said, well, what if you don't get to do that? You know, what if you die before you can make your impact in the world? That's not exactly good, right? Uh, and you, I believe you can do both. So yeah. I, I think the most important work Better Place does is showing people that you can create a really big, successful business while actually creating a positive externality. And that's really exciting. That's, that, that, to me, matters. Uh, at a personal level, I like to drive my, my e-bike. Nice. Uh, this is now my favorite form of transportation. I think e-bikes are the future. Uh, I'm kind of amazed how I, I just got one a couple months ago, and I'm, like, shocked how it's completely changed access in my thinking about mobility. It used to be walking or car, and now it's, like, get on your e-bike and go 10 miles, and it's awesome. Yeah, it's probably so much fun, too. <laughs> Oh, yeah. They're really fun. <laughs> Question number three. Yeah, last one. What is one environmental topic you think my listeners should be more aware of after hearing from you today? Uh, I think sustainable sustainable business. Yeah. I think, you know, what I'm, what I'm really interested in, if I want to push on it personally, and some people might not like this, but I, I think you always need to, you know, scratch pretty deep on stuff that's marketed, marketed as sustainable to make sure it really is. Yeah. You know, yeah. If, if you live in a region, it's nice to drive an electric car, but if you live in a region that's mostly coal-powered, Obviously, that's not the best. Um, and we have to think about that holistically as like, how do we solve broad problems and, and how do we recognize how long it takes to solve them? Yeah. Because some things are, are hard and some things take, you know, five or 10 years and that's okay. Uh, but I think the goal should be looking at businesses and saying, how do you create a sustainable business? Um, how do you create a product? One of the things that I think is really interesting, um, I'm sorry, this is a long answer. <laughs> that's okay. Is ask people not... How do you take a product that's good and make it sustainable? It's how do you take a product and make it sustainable so that it's a great product? Because ultimately, I, I think that's how you really move things forward is by creating something that people deeply want, even if sustainability is not what that person wants. Some people are always going to want to buy a sustainable product. What I think is really amazing is when you can create a product that is sustainable, that someone who doesn't necessarily care about the environmental impact is buying anyway. Yeah. That way everyone is contributing to something getting better. Yeah, I, I agree 100% there. So, all right. 
Sandy, thank you so much for your time. Like I said at the start, this topic was totally new to me, so I really appreciate you stopping by. If people want to keep up with you or the work that Better Place Forest is doing, where is the best place to do that? Uh, great. Well, they can find us at betterplaceforest.com. Um, and of course, uh, however they want to follow us on Facebook or Instagram uh, or Twitter, uh, we are there. So um, I, I hope people want to learn more about it. I love this. I love talking about Better Place Forest. It's been a real pleasure being on your podcast. So if you have any more questions for me, if I can ever help out again, you just let me know. Awesome. Sounds good. And we will put the website in the show notes. So if you're listening now, scroll down, click the website, and we'll also tag you on Instagram and Twitter when we post there. So thank you again. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. And that'll do it for today's episode of TPT. Thanks again to Sandy for his time here. I really enjoyed the conversation and I hope our listeners did too. We'll be back on Friday for some more of those quick hits you know and love from us. Until then, make sure to follow along on our socials at Planet Today Pod for clips from the show and an exclusive quick hit I'm working on every week. For the Planet Today, I'm Matt Norton. See you on Friday.